Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Okay, Rob, so uh, welcome to the Aritay Podcast. It's great to have you along. You and I have uh, known each other for many years and we've threatened to do this uh, a few times. So it's great to finally make it happen. I'm sitting here in a sunny Brisbane and you're over there in sunny Perth. Yeah, thanks how's, a lot, Rich. How's life on the other side of the country? Um, well, much the same as it was in Brisbane, except I don't get to see as many people now. Um, I think right. I set the trend on, on COVID with social distancing, working eastern east and west coast and uh, working from home. And uh, by the time everyone else started doing it, I was uh, well down the road, but now I need to get more human contact back on the east coast. It's uh, it's uh, getting a bit of enough now, but uh, yes. otherwise Perth is nice. It's beautiful. It's sunny. Excellent. I hear you. Uh, I'm uh, not only was I in lockdown and getting frustrated, but then I broke my arm. So being in lockdown and not being able to drive a car is, uh, is hell. <laughs> But anyway, such as life. So, Rob, um, why not just to begin with, tell us a little bit about um, your current professional responsibilities. My current, um, yeah, so currently I am uh, running a, a hedge fund called the Clean Energy Transfer Fund. Um, it's a hedge fund, uh, a strategy that is um, exploiting the arbitrage between um, where renewable energy is and going and with a focus at 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 realizing the competitive advantage of renewable and cleaner energy in in the energy mix within Australia, focusing on the national electricity market where we um, take a position on wind and also uh, battery energy storage projects. Right. So for those those mere mortals uh, amongst us, explain what uh, uh, the, you said exploiting the arbitrage, I think was your term. What what do you mean by that? Well, the, the anchor bias that that a lot of people have is that renewables are expensive. Renewables are um, uncertain. Renewables um, come with a lot of un- uncertainty and therefore cannot uh, form a majority of the electricity mix within Australia. And that's largely driven by by historical incumbents. So the incumbents in the market have a lot of coal and thermal generation. And there is a fundamental difference is... Um, Renewables is long finance, so it needs a lot of debt, right? But its effective cost of competition and cost of delivery now are cheaper than thermal. So old traditional coal and gas. Um, so it's where we are is we are in a transition in that market where now that we've got an old fleet of thermal power stations that are like an old car that hasn't been serviced properly, it's becoming a lot more unreliable. Uh, the politics surrounding energy is uh, is not certain, which is creates further uncertainty in a market, and that is incorporated within the electricity price, which is one of the most volatile prices in the world. Um, and the the bias against renewables is that renewables require subsidies. Now that may have been the case a decade ago. Now, when we're dealing with gas and coal as our major competitors is we, we have um, 
solar and wind have a cost competitiveness where they can deliver power more cheaply and more effectively than um, than what thermal can. So can I just um, uh, clarify, when you said, um, you know, it's competitive for the supply, but it requires a lot of debt, that's because, you know, your traditional energy, um, uh, you know, coal-fired plants, et cetera, they're already in situ. So yep. what you're and is, paid off. Right. So you're you're looking at... The battery farms and so on, they, they get to be built. Correct. And so um, the, the real comp competition here is um, uh, uh, the balancing of renewable long-run marginal costs because there is a, a very, very small short-run marginal cost. So that short-run marginal cost is, well, how much does it cost you to fire it up and to gener or to generate the electricity? Whereas your short-run marginal cost with thermal power is your cost of gas, your operations and maintenance, your variable costs. Mm -hmm. Whereas your long-run marginal costs are your predictable debt repayments, mm -hmm. all the rest of that skeleton. And so really your renewables is your long-run marginal cost um, and your delivery of power. So that actually makes it pretty cheap. But the bridge that is sometimes too far is um, a bank because it is long dates, it's project finance, right? Mm -hmm. Project finance in its simplest form is lazy. And in my, my view or the analogy I use is project finance is the most efficient vehicle for creating capital inefficiency. So you can get a lot of debt, but it all gets a, a, a lot of capital gets locked up to protect the senior lender um, in a project and the senior lenders because they want certainty, and you know, I might term that as lazy sometimes, but um, it's lazy with a purpose because it wants certainty. That certainty needs um, needs to understand what the revenue is going to look like. And because the market is not that predictable, it's really volatile, merchant exposure is what, what, what it's called, is where you totally face the spot market. Um, that doesn't get a lot of support. And banks generally want to get certainty over revenue. So that drives power purchase agreements. Now, power purchase agreements for, for renewables, um, there's very few credible off-takers that can sign a power purchase agreement for long enough that can create the certainty for project financiers to provide debt to the, um, to the projects. Mm -hmm. So that's precisely what the CETF does, is it provides long-term fixed price bundled traditional power purchase agreements to renewable energy assets. Um, and we, we then take on the market risk. Um, the opportunity and the arbitrage there that we have identified is if we can get high quality projects into the grid, one, it's great for the market. Mm -hmm. It's good for the grid. It's good for the consumer. Mm -hmm. Two, for the period of time in this transition, there's an arbitrage opportunity where they're incumbents and we are purposely a hedge fund and not a retailer. Um, and that is because the volatility of the market we want to see is our output. We want to face the volatility and we then would see our ability to package up a large portfolio of really high quality assets to then provide services to either corporates either retailers or other market customers and market participants that are re registered in the wholesale market. And so they might have a retail load or retail shape or something like that, that we can, we can provide that. And so, you know, these power purchase agreements, just rewinding a bit, there's very few 
real buyers out there. So they're largely are your incumbents. There's like your Snowy Hydro. There's um, there's your um, you know, Alinta Origin, AGL, and a few others. And now there's the entrant of the corporates. Now corporates like Google and Amazon have large enough balance sheets that it doesn't make a difference if they encumber their balance sheet with these PPAs. Um, and so they can sign long dated power purchase agreements. Whereas other corporates, it becomes more of an accounting issue. So it's a bit harder to get over the renewable energy hurdle because it's done either from a motivation of wanting to be green versus a commercial outcome. So we try and bridge that gap by building up those portfolios and we would then not only stratify really high quality assets on the one side, but how we manage the market risk on the other. And in, in so doing, be able to provide the renewables supply to the buyers, mm. but enable really high quality projects that are able to enter into the grid. And really how we do that is we've, we've taken a non-traditional approach to, to purchasing of, of power is that we do prospecting as opposed to reverse auctions. So traditional buyers, uh, generally, they'll, they'll send out a request for proposal or an RFP. Um, and they'll just say, go for your life. Everyone come in at the, and, it's, and, and it's like the hula. Whoever comes in at the lowest cost. Um, and, and the thought really, in summary, very high level, um, really ends there and it comes in at, at the lowest cost. Whereas our approach is... Um, in our prospect, and we've analyzed every single project, planned, thought of, ideas, operational assets, um, and we understand their locations on the grids, where it is on the grid. And if you see the politics where Victoria and AMO were going head to head um, earlier this year and last year, that Victoria wanted to go on its own um, and, and do its grid upgrades um, because AMO and AER, Australian Energy Reg regulator were not um, moving fast enough on the on the grid upgrades that created choke points for, for renewables we identified a lot of those problems and avoided them and started ident and started engaging with with other projects so there is a key difference is we have investigated the projects and we match it to market need market shape so that is a load shape so th that is demand so what does demand actually look like right and at the end of the day, we don't look at an annual, what is called an annual capacity factor. So a lot of developers and traditional buyers um, would say, oh, I've got a great capacity factor of 40%. That means on average, 40% of the time, you're generating electricity. That for us means nothing. Consumption is seasonally driven and it's diurnally driven. So within a day, within a 24-hour period, within a week, a month and a season. Those are the critical things for us. We identify that. And then it is, well, where is the project? There's no point in having a mega project at the end of a very, very thin grid or a weak grid. Unfortunately, there are a lot of projects like that. We go and identify where are the appropriate projects? Where are the best projects that match market need? And then we look at the market dynamics about how to incorporate that project into the grid. So, just sorry, Rob, just so I can understand. So, <clears throat> you're not, however, investing in the construction of the project, are you? You're, no. you're essentially saying to them, we will give you a guarantee of the purchase of X amount of power that you generate, and that yep. enables them then to go and get the project finance for the construction of the project. Correct, yep. 
Yeah, right. Okay, cool. And so, or if they've uh, got an operational project and then they can refinance it. If they've taken it on a balance sheet for construction and want to sell it and, and enhance value, that PPA creates further value. They can refinance it. They can get better terms with the bank. Right. They can they can a sell their projects to um, more conservative buyers that want a mature project with like like pension funds or supers right. as an example, they like getting exposures to things that are a lot more certain that helps them with the asset liability ma management. And then are you securing the future order from the corporate or are you just securing an amount of energy knowing that at that time you will have the end user who want to buy it? Yeah, well, I mean, f fundamentally, the spot market is a liquid 100% settled market an energy market so if you take that as a premise there is always a buyer yeah. right because it's 100 percent a settled the variable here is settled at what price right the price can go from minus one thousand dollars to minus what well, well to a um, to fourteen thousand five hundred dollars yeah. a megawatt hour yeah. and that's for one trading period and a, a 30 minute trading period so the variable the variability there is pretty major um, our focus area is Vic and New South Wales. Um, and so what we would do is we would have a proportion of our book. So we've got our, our books, which is our front end two year and then eight year on, well, um, three year onward book. That's the long term book is more structural. And our front end book is more liquid. So what that means is we actively manage the front end book. So at times we will we will increase our spot exposure and at other times we will take variable hedging strategies that is um, demonstrable or, or is um, in line with market risk dynamics. So what that means in simple terms is where the world is going, we take a position and either it is uh, really bad p p politics um, and uh, a lot of price uncertainty, um, it's really hot, um, thermal generators are failing and like happened end of last year and the year before um, and um, and there's high prices. We would maximize our spot exposure in, in that scenario. However, um, as you go through a January and you're coming into autumn, you would then naturally hedge. So what you would do is you would layer the book into a more structural longer term trades. So that means providing services to, um, to other other market customers or retailers and that's providing all other traders where you would provide a, what's called a firm product mm -hmm. so you'll take a tranche out and you'll sell this i will deliver this energy to you consistently at this price mm -hmm. right so that's a longer term structural then you get into shorter term structural such as uh corporate ppas where we'll say okay i'll provide that corporate with x amount of energy be it variable or fixed or a combination thereof mm -hmm. um that builds up another layer where you lock in some of your profit. Then you'll use um, energy futures as another layer on top of that. That's liquid in order to be able to manage it. And there's a whole bunch of other products. Right. And you can use other derivatives, um, weather derivatives and the rest of that stuff. So hence the reason why I say we split up the responsibility with the project guys saying, project guys, develop your projects. We're the risk management guys. We'll give the contract to you. You do you go for your life, build the projects, operate it because you do it a lot better than we do. We do the risk stuff, but better than 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 we like to think. We do it a bit better than a lot of people, um, and we focus just on that. Right. So, oh, yes. it sounds so complicated compared with my uh, 
very simple. Well, Richard, here's a vacancy. Fill the vacancy. I fill the vacancy. Okay, here's another vacancy. Yeah, it sounds. Yeah, but Rich, we both know finding the right person to put into a vacancy is fundamentally, um, yeah, that fundamentally does not. Well, it's, it's, it's lucky that we're all good and enjoy doing different things. So, yeah, Rob, um, let's, uh, let's go back to where it all began. Tell us a little bit about, uh, you know, where you were born and, uh, you know, early life, mum, dad, brothers, sisters, and um, uh, there's a twang to your voice. So, no doubt you, uh, you're from other shores. Tell us all about that. Yeah, um, so you you can hear that I was born in South Africa. I was born in Johannesburg in South Africa. I um, I grew up in the south of Johannesburg um, on a on a plot of land on a six acre plot opposite a, a big farm in the countryside. Um, so I grew up running around the hills and uh, and I went to uh, primary school out there. I've got two older sisters. Um, my dad was um, he was group strategy and, and he helped to build up a company called Tiger Brands. Now it uh, was Tiger Oats back then, um, and uh, he's uh, so he was very career driven. My mom was very home driven, and uh, so that was nice growing up like that. I went to boarding school um, in the Natal Midlands at a school called Treverton, um, and it's a co boarding school, monthly boarding school. Um, that was uh, that was pretty fun. That was outdoor driven, not very a traditional, um, more of a Gordonson type of model. And uh, and then I went to Wits University where I studied science. At that stage, I wanted to actually go to the army, believe it or not. And so the degree I wanted to take, um, I, I hadn't really planned for it. And I, so I got accepted into law, commerce, and into science. And um, and I thought, well, I, I enjoy a good debate. So um, I stood in the law line, but I have a phobia against cues. Well, I wouldn't call it a phobia. I just I get quite irritable in queues. So, and it was a dysfunctional queue. Yes. And so I said, bugger this. I'm not going to do law now. It's too dysfunctional. I'm going to go and have a look at commerce. Hang on. Why, why, why are lawyers more likely to be in queues? I don't quite understand. Well, I mean, no, it's just on the registration day to go to university. Uh, I was standing there and I had my three acceptance letters and I was just suddenly going, okay, what am I going to do? Uh, I I have to get a degree to go to the army and I wanted to go to Sanders, right? Right. And, um, because I'm, I'm, I'm a dual passport holder and, uh, and I'm a UK citizen as well. And, uh, so I thought, well, I, I enjoy a good debate and I enjoy talking crap sometimes and and um and so i thought well law would be good fun and um and then i went into the commerce line and it was even more disorganized right. and even more chaotic and the queues were longer so i decided bugger that i went and i had to look walked onto the other side of campus and i had to look at the at the science line right. it was a third of the length and moving twice as fast uh-huh. so i signed up for science Okay. I discovered after three months why it was a third of the queue. Right. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, so I studied science and uh, I was um, I always enjoyed science and I went down the genetics route. I got really bored with lab work and I really enjoyed the systems modeling and the and the, and the ecology work. So I changed my major across there and I and I focused on the systems ecology and also on in, in terms of ecophys eco. Physiology, and um, and then I moved on uh, from that, and I realised, well, actually, I'm pretty terrible. Well, I'm not a researcher. I 
I'm not an, an independent and the, and the academic world um, did not attract me at all. I was sitting in a climate change course, post-grade climate change course, dealing with the lead negotiator. And we we're talking about climate change dynamics back then. And I put my hand up at the table and I said, this looks like this is actually a major market opportunity. This is less of an environmental. Yes, it's an environmental and a scientific um, problem that we're trying to solve, but at the actual market mechanisms that can create a significant opportunity for a country and for something like that. And the negotiator turned around and said, yeah, well done. So I actually built up a good relationship then. And so I decided I'm going to go into the climate change markets. So I went into that and I started doing um, what's called life cycle assessments for the biofuels industry and clean development and climate change projects um, to generate carbon credits. Um, I migrated from that. Um, I was recruited into that job. I then, um, and I was working in Mozambique, I was working in Mozambique, Malawi in the Philippines out of, out of Johannesburg. So I was flying around having fun going into the countryside and, um, my first management job out of university, I had to manage this ex British para who his first war was in the Falklands. And he, this was, he decided to go and live in the Philippines and he was going to be my project manager on the ground in his old war dog and uh, in his forties. And I had to um, manage him and I had to learn a lesson about not only how to manage people, because this is my first job, I needed to be managed, um, but I needed to learn really quickly, not only to manage, but to manage well and to keep respect. Um, and to not be, not be an idiot. And I learned the simple rules of uh, don't be a dick, don't be a dick, and don't forget rule one and two, right? Um, just you know, be, be practical. And that was actually one of the most important lessons. I, I left that and I went to PwC, where I joined the sustainability team, um, where we did the validation, the auditing, and I got into auditing. And I, like, there, I enjoyed getting into the problems. But I felt really constrained because I... I'm really, when, when I find problems, I've got to know that I really enjoy finding problems, right? There's no better satisfaction than finding a problem, but the real satisfaction comes in from identifying a problem and getting focused as all hell. Like I, I do have ADD, right? So I, I, I jump around when it's high level, but when it comes down to focus time and there's something, there's a problem that really catches it. I can go for your, I can out-focus almost anyone, right? And I can take, and for long-term, I can take weeks, months, or whatever. I can remain focused on that problem, finding a solution to it. And is your, uh, Rob, is your ADD a self-diagnosis or a proper one? No, a proper one. Um, oh, really? <laughs> yeah. And, I, um, I, Michelle says to me, Richard, you've got ADD. I go, Michelle, I'm 52 years old now. Uh, I just have to accept my quirks. But, uh, exactly. It's a quirk, right? Yeah. At the end of the day. And, um, and so I then, and, and the key stumbling block that I was feeling was I'm finding problems in customers and clients, but I'm not able to do what I love doing. And that's building the solution to get out, to get through on the other side. So mm -hmm. I hated generating reports with advice of going, hi, this is a problem or an audit report or a strategic advice report. I know those are really important, but I felt my, my, I wasn't really stepping up to the problem. 
Mm. And when you identify a problem, stepping up to the problem is really important and finding a way to, form, um, um, to solve that. And at that, at that stage in the climate change markets um, and the renewable energy market, I was trying to get um, a combined service offering between um, bringing in transactions, sustainability, tax, and a few other service, service lines within PwC. But that's in the 2000s, a commodity super cycle. Uh, Pre-GFC and uh, the corporate finance transaction guys said we we got bigger problems to do. Guys, young young Rob, go and uh, go back to your lane and uh, look. We, we we'll look look at this in a couple of years again. We don't believe in the renewables industry. So um, I got a a call from a corporate finance out, outfit, a boutique independent corporate finance outfit, and they said, well, we think this renewable energy um, there's something to this clean energy sector and but we need we've heard that we need to talk to you so i had a chat to them they said well don't you want to come and work for us um and we, we're trying to combine corporate finance sustainability and everything and that was that was merchant tech capital i went in there because they they came and they were speaking the language that i was trying to do inside pwc so i built up a team of about six people in there I was lucky. Um, you know, my anchor client was First Strand Bank, um, and uh, really grateful to that, uh, helping get the team going. We did some of the first equity transactions uh, for wind energy in South Africa back then. Um, and then my girlfriend at the time, uh, she wanted to move to be closer to her family. She's also a South African, but her family are in are in New Zealand, and um, she wanted to move to this town called Sydney. So um, I had my team, she packed her bags, she moved over, I really missed her, and I bought a ring. I realized that I missed her so much that I, uh, I didn't want to not have her around, and probably the next time I say goodbye to her would be in a pine box. And uh, so I said, okay, well, that's cool. Um, found a ring, jumped on a plane, uh, re recruited someone to take my role um, that, that I had at Merchant Tech, and uh, shortly after I left, KPMG and Deloitte came and split my team in half, and and uh, that was the end of end of my team. But I took it as a compliment that I found some really really good people, and they saw v value in that. And then we went off to um, I moved to Sydney. I moved to Sydney just while the CPRS was and Rudd was in power. Mm -hmm. Clean energy sector was rosy, and. Um, I'd been in the country for about six weeks. I was going to go back to PwC or I was going to go find another job at, um, at, at Macquarie or somewhere else. And there were a lot of jobs in the sector. As we all know, uh, the CPRS got pulled, Rudd lost his job and the sector collapsed. I did some um, really interesting work. I, well, I, I went and I had lunch with the partner in charge of the team at PwC that I was going to join again. And um, he was told, uh, and, and it was a really interesting lunch I'd been I think at that stage, I'd been in the country for two months. Uh, end of my holiday now, I now wanted to get into a job and start working. And um, and I thought, well, the agenda of the lunch was to discuss two items left of the contract and then to execute and move on. Anyway, that wasn't how the lunch went. I was taken for lunch and I was, I was eating a chicken, a Thai chicken curry. Um, and, uh, and I was, um, it's a, uh, um, yeah, in Darling Harbour there, we were sitting outside on the roof there to, close to um, and the towers and, and, I was, and it was a beautiful day. And uh, the partner said to me, um, we're, we're cutting our team in half. I'm a 25-year partner and I'm the first one to leave and we're not going to be honoring your contract. I hope mm -hmm. you enjoy your lunch. Let's have a chat. You're a nice right. guy. 
by that stage, we'd built up a little bit of a rapport. Yeah. And I thought, oh, crap, I'm in this new city, new country. I have no net, net, no, no network. And that's where I discovered life. You have life. a lovely fiancé. Oh, she's amazing. Yeah. And she's... <laughs> She's the smart one in the couple. She's incredible. Um, and um, at that stage, I had to figure out. But that's where I realized n- networks are much bigger than you realize. And people actually care, right? So, yes, it was hard having to find, try and find a job. But I actually found that selling work was easier than finding a job. So, I went and I sold work. But at that stage, I got called into the World Bank after about six months of doing this and I saw my CV on the desk and I literally had my dream job given to me. Mm. I have no clue how I got that. If I ever find the person responsible to for that one opportunity, I'm going to give them a big wet smooch. I don't care who it is, right. um, but a huge thanks. Right. And big I had to design smooch. a big wet smooch. Yes. That was, <laughs> I'm really grateful. I got pulled in and I had to design what a green incentive fund for the Pacific islands. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, at that stage it was early transition, different technologies required different styles of capital, a blended capital approach. So I went and I was able to design that. Then I did some work for some infrastructure funds. And then I got this call from um, this guy called Greg. And I had no clue who this guy called Greg was. Um, and so um, and he said, he's been told that he had to talk to me. And I was like, I, I'm sorry. I was really confused. Like, I'm just this South African guy trying to get going, trying to sort stuff out. And I have the shadow minister for climate, climate change calling me and sending me the direct action plan and asking for a couple of comments. So um, I, you know, he asked for five bullet points um, or at most 10. So who told uh, him to call you? I don't know. This right. is I'm, but this is where I start to learn that people actually care, right? And your network, looking after your network, people in the background will look after you. Yeah. Just look after people and don't forget the three rules. Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. And don't forget rule one and two, right? Um, and, and always show up and always deliver. So if you shake someone's hand, deliver consistently and treat people well, right? And do the best that you can. So anyway, I had a chat to him and uh, I wrote... Um, my, what, what I thought in my mind were 10 points on the direct action plan. And it turned in, and then he asked me to print it out and to meet him. I printed it out. It was three pages of bullet points of problems that I saw with the direct action plan. So that transpired and I was appointed as his external policy advisor, um, trying to take international policy trends and put that forward. But that was at the time where the Gillard Abbott happy days were were were, were, were going and, and, and the world was more, um, and with the fight than it was with what's happening with energy policy going forward, what's happening with decarbonization, what's actually happening for the good of the country and for certainty and for policy certainty. It was more about just the power scrap. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that stage, uh, the renewable energy market in South Africa had just hit a big boom. And I, was, I went to the UN uh, climate change conference I met a couple of people and this company, Xoro, a large coal mining company, had a new energy team. They recruited me over in December and they said, uh, here's a role that we want you to take to be a PM, a project manager for this project. We, we, we have a number of challenges on it, but we have to get it through. Um, we like your skill set, we like your history, and we are growing this new energy company. We're going to be solving a lot of problems. And uh, we went through it and we had a strong alignment of interests. 
as it so happens, you know, I would have taken that job where there was in Mongolia. Like the mere fact that I could go back to my old hometown was a huge bonus. So I jumped on a plane. I moved back to South Africa. And there I worked on wind initially. But because of my M&A, my corporate finance background, some of my transactional background, I moved into the, into the opportunities and the business development where I develop projects, acquire projects, and take them through to financial close. I then started on wind. I went through and I, I worked in solo. I then looked at a couple of a couple of deals. Um, and then we went, um, and then I started to focus on the, on the subcontinent. So, um, sub-Saharan Africa, I started to expand out and looking at, uh, at gas, um, imported LNG projects, um, with floating storage. And then I also worked on some coal, coal fire power station projects as well. So by that stage, a couple of years down the road, I'd worked across and, you know, I started to identify a critical issue with project finance and energy financing. Um, number one, project finance's efficiency. Two, how project finance is packaged for the, uh, the recognition of the variables that you're actually taking on for a renewable energy project and the risks that the revenue, short-term revenue is missed because dividends are paid Short-term issues are, 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 are not fully understood or appreciated by um, the investment committee that are making the decisions on behalf of the board or be able to re recommend these pretty sizable investments. And I saw that, that the, the weather variables and the revenue short-term impacts were much larger than what a lot of the financial models were taken account of. And you know, I, I kept on being asked a question by a lot of executives is why do wind farms more frequently underperform than they overperform, right? And that comes down to the type of the distribution and really understanding the probability function of the wind, right? Um, and at that stage, I moved out because I wanted to really understand the risk of the short-term revenue, and I joined Swiss Re, and, um, and I joined the Weather and Energy Derivatives team, um, and there, I got to focus on precisely that, where I got to bring together my science background and my finance background um, all together into a job. And I was having a ball. Um, and I got to cover Africa, Middle East, and India, where all the different, uh, all the, all the different uh, jurisdictions, different cultures, different energy problems, and try and find solutions. So for some countries we would, that are largely hydro, we were looking at, at doing hydro hedges and trying to understand economies and the impact of that was really really interesting so an example there is working through a trying to provide protection to a country with drought protection knowing that when they go through drought there is a devaluation in their currency they have to replace it with very expensive oil price dollar linked um energy and that has a has a potential to drive a recessions even deeper <clears throat> and create further political you know, political instability so that's a significant credit risk so looking from a sovereign level all the way down to wind project level and trying to hedge out in what's called like a revenue swap or a protection hedge protecting the production of of a project and dealing with the project financiers there so a huge gambit and lots of different jurisdictions and lots of tools to be able to use and to look at how the protection is structured that then led and because of the portfolio of the projects we're looking at I was then put in charge of looking at the global wind hedging project. So look at all the different markets and understanding how do we use project finance or how do we 
maximize the value of 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 our product to the to the you know, to the asset owners and to the financiers so that we can improve the competitiveness um, and we could take some of the risk and we can get paid a premium for that so as a part of that and analyzing all the markets there's something that was really peculiar about the national electricity market in Australia and a part of that project we identified that the risk difference between taking a wind hedge versus taking a power purchase agreement <clears throat> is not that different. However, what is critically different is if you take a PPA position, you have all these tools, like I spoke about earlier on the call, to manage your risk. Whereas if I take a wind hedge, I'm sitting in what's called net. So that basically means I take this position and I have to back it with a whole bunch of cash. So I'm very simple simplistic in how I manage that, that risk. And I've got limited ability to trade out that risk. So I use my balance sheet, my credit rating to enhance the credit quality of the, of the project to enhance financing. So as a part of that, we try to drive a change in strategy for in Australia that we would take PPAs and manage the risk. Mm-hmm. That brought in too many lines and that wasn't really... Um, different lines and that pushed us out into a pure pure hedge fund strategy um, that one or two others were starting to look at but Swiss Re um, didn't uh, want to pursue and we believed in it um, so strongly that um, we started to um, pursue it and at that stage I had to jump we I was sitting at Christmas time with my wife in Johannesburg and we have our permanent residency. Now, um, I forgot to mention, I only went back to South Africa on a deal that was meant to be for two years. Right. To work on one project and go back to Sydney. Right. Okay. As you can hear, that didn't work out. Right. And while we were in South Africa, we got married, we accumulated two kids and a dog. Um, and, uh, and we were sitting there after New Year's, or Christmas time, New Year's, about to go back to work and we were, talking about, well, it's probably time for us to go back to Australia. I've, I've, uh, I was reminded that I've had more than 300% return on my, on my deal right. time covering Africa. And, uh, I was having a lot of fun there and I really enjoyed Africa and, uh, and, um, it's time for us to go back to, back to Australia. Mm-hmm. And so we said, yeah, have a check. So when does our permanent re- residency expire? Mm-hmm. And so Sean, my wife went and checked, she came back to me and she said, well, expires on the, on the 17th of March. So 17th of March is, it has become a, a day in infamy. It's my mm-hmm. best mate's birthday. It's St. Patrick's Day. And it was also the day now that our, our PR was going to expire. Anyway, right. so I've, uh, I thought it was in a year's the next March. As it so right. happened, it wasn't the next March. Right. It was this March. And we are now in mid-January. Mm-hmm. So we had to sell up houses, resign, change jobs, and uh, um Obviously, I didn't give Swiss too much notice. Um, and so I moved and we moved to Brisbane. I'd never been to Brisbane before. Um, and there I, I took the time in the beginning to really dive into the strategy. And the strategy I went and, you know, as a part of corporate projects, you can, you've got access to teams, but you've got to do your deal flow first. And then you do the corporate projects basically on the side. So you don't get enough time to really nut it out. So now I had time. So I nutted it out. So we went and we built the models. I worked with some of the actuaries that I worked with. And we built up some really nice stuff to really get into the crux of it. And as I was diving and getting reacquainted with 
with the national electricity market um, that I'd been out of for a couple of months and I'd only been looking at from, from the wind hedge and project side of things, getting to understand price and behavior, doing a top-down analysis and catching up, I identified two problems, two key problems that were emerging is one, I was, the first problem is I was verifying the strategy that was going to become the clean energy transfer fund. Mm-hmm. And that was in 2016, 2017. All right. So that was before a lot of the problems were actually coming to the fore. This disconnect was starting to happen. The other one was there's a lot of rooftop solar storage happening, distributed energy resources that are coming into the grid, and that's changing the complexity and changing the debates. And there's what I called solutions trying to find problems. And there's a lack of optimization on the use of assets. So that became Tokyo intelligent infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And I paired up with a commercial mathematics outfit called called Abiori and my partners there. And we started up that company. Mm-hmm. We've been trying to build that. And what these two companies were doing, are, well, their objective is to solve fundamental problems. Mm-hmm. The energy transfer fund is looking at the renewable and that, that's, that's the subject of our discussion today. Whereas Tokyo is focusing on the, on the distributed level how to maximize the use of assets, optimal use of assets for system security at the lowest cost and to enable a distributed level group of assets to interact with the wholesale market Mm -hmm. coming back. If I remember, Rob, you know, uh, at that time, that was where we sort of first met. Mm. I think we might have been introduced uh, at the Brisbane Club and then you joined my... um, uh, my uh, Breakfast of Champions program. Yeah. And I remember you coming into my monthly breakfast and starting to talk about this stuff and I'm thinking to myself, what the bloody hell is this guy going on about? I didn't have a clue. Um, but there, fortunately, there's some people in the group that uh, you know, <laughs> knew what you were talking about and uh, it ended up in some really interesting conversations. It was, so it was really fun. And that period and those breakfasts I found really useful because uh, I could talk to people and... Um, and, and share views. But not only that, um, that period of time where I was doing a lot of the pitches and I was failing miserably. Like I was, I was, I was like a World War I biplane pilot flying over no man's land that's just been shot down and, and spiraling in a, in a burning plane down through chlorine gas clouds uh, before I crash. And I was in purgatory, so I was doing that in repeat, right? That's a very good visualization. Of uh, of starting up companies, yes. If you're willing to do that, then uh, then go and start up companies. Otherwise, don't. Um, <laughs> so then, yeah. Then sticking with that, building up Tokyo, but also refining the work and the strategy for the clean energy transfer fund. Doing that again and again and again, and investing a lot of time. The problems that we identified really started to come to the fore, and people got quite interested. But I would show them the hedge fund strategy, and they'll go, "That's too complex," right? Then I'd show them energy tech and they got all excited. So Tokyo took the limelight for a while while I got this going. But then I got a, a group of a different type of investor. They were interested in Tokyo first because energy tech, everyone was, everyone's interested in that. But as I started to ask questions, so as opposed to taking the Shark Tank pitch approach, how glossy and are you, are you doing like an Airbnb 15 side pitch? Are you moved all that BS aside and said, so what is the business? And got to know me. And over a period of six months, um, I was still doing the pitches for the fund, flying around Sydney, Melbourne, pitching to everyone. Um, 
the Australian guy, so Nick, um, who I met at the at the Brisbane club as well, um, he, his colleagues and partners came out to Brisbane and we had a meeting. Um, I was flying back in from Sydney and they were flying out that evening. We met at one of the hotels on the road and we sat there in the lobby. And as we were going through the Tokyo strategy, I'd literally just given up on the fund. I, I had promised Sean that, that this would be my last pitches that I would do. I'd been uh, pitching for two years and uh, I was sitting with them. And while I was going through the Tokyo pitch, um, obviously deflated from the fund p- 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 pitches, I, uh, the one guy leans over and he says, well, if you can do all this AI stuff, can't you trade it? So I laughed. I just shrugged my shoulders and I said, well, th- this is actually the trading strategy. And I opened up the, the deck and went through it. And he asked to see a bit more of the technical details. And he, uh, he turned around and says, I get it. Let's do it. So I was done. And the right. transfer fund was, was then born. And the focus for that's been 18 months ago. And uh, so now we've uh, we've refined it. We've got over 100 uh, million. I mean, I mean, assets. We're now focusing on the next 100 raise. We've got uh, I think we're about just over halfway there. Um, COVID threw a bit of a curveball for the next 100, and now we are um, focusing on acquiring our PPAs and doing battery energy storage projects. We've got a, a pipeline that is looking quite healthy. Um, we've hired, thanks Rich, um, some incredible people. I'm really lucky that now we've got some amazing people joining the team and it's, um, this journey is growing. So that's where I am. I've now, I've got my problems and I now have to find ways to solve them. I've got people around me to help me, um, um, to, um, to help uh, deliver on the solution. So I couldn't be happier. It's challenging. And the idea, Rob, you're currently in Perth, but you want to relocate back to Brisbane. Yeah, I mean, like th- these are East Coast focused uh, companies. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the Clean Energy Transfer Fund is a national electricity market focused fund. So, yeah, it's um, the objective there is to relocate back. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so if you look out to the future now, um, you know, what, what, are the, what are the sort of the challenges you mentioned? You've got problems to solve still, which you love to do. You know, um, what, what are some of the problems you hope to solve and uh, where would you like to see the business in, say, five years' time? Well, in five years' time, I'd like to see the Clean Energy Transfer Fund evolve from just a pure hedge fund. I'd like to see at least the second or third fund being established then. So having an infrastructure equity um, component to it. So one of the value adds that I'm seeing right now to the investor community is the traditional plays that the investor community have is they'll either take equity in projects or they'll provide debts or a combination of the two. And then they ask the question, well, how is the market, how is market risk managed? Go and find a PPA, go to a traditional buyer. Whereas we've started from the other side. We do enhanced due diligence. We look at the market risk first. And so what we believe that we would be able to do is in time is to be able to provide our significant investors and the investor community with a, an enhanced capability of getting high quality assets. So you don't build up um, sub-performing asset portfolios that we've seen. There's been some big brands that are now disposing of their assets um, and be a bit more tactical about it. So I would see um, hopefully an, an equity fund um, and then in time um, look at the debt capital markets as well um, and focus on the clean energy aid transition and the competitiveness there. Um, 
that's where I'd see the clean energy transfer fund um, in the next five years, three to five years. I would see us, uh, this fund, I'd see us with at least, at least 700 to a gigawatt of capacity under management with a significant battery portfolio as well um, and providing services to the market. So that would be ongoing. This fund is a 10 plus year fund. So it's got, it's not a, a short-term um, traditional hedge fund. It's a non-traditional long, long short strategy in, um, in renewables. So yeah, that's where I see it. Mm. And um, you know, it's been a, a bit of a wild and uh, rocky road to get you to where you are. It's obviously required you to be, you know, highly tenacious and persistent and continue to fly that blood, that bike. Oh, what is it? The, the plane, the, uh, the biplane, biplane yeah. through the, Clouds of chlorine gas. Um, what do you think that's? Why do you think you've um, been able to sort of straight stay true to the course? When I imagine, you know, a lot of people would have uh, said, "Oh, this is just too hard," and gone back to their day job. Um, it takes me back to one of my favourite sports. So growing up, um, one of my favourite sports to do was whitewater kayaking. Right. And I think it's the mentality that you get is you identify the problem and you're focusing on, on finding a solution to it. So when you're going over a waterfall or into a rapid, you can't just pull out half like after your first wave that hits and the further down you've, you're not committed. So now you're focusing on getting out the other side, right? Then pulling, pulling the ripcord and, you know, and swimming because you're either going to swim down, or you're going to hit some rocks and you're going to get hurt or you're going to you know, try and grab a rope and, and, you know, or try and find something or you, and a lot, you, you don't have time for that. So getting through all the chaos is uh, navigating each of those. And there's a thousand, you know, you're, tr- you're trying to solve this big problem mm. that you see, and you don't see the thousand small problems that rear their heads every single day mm. and finding a way to systematically work through that and, the biggest problem is really yourself mm. and learning how to deal with yourself on your own mind, your own, um, your biggest, or my biggest uh, critic is myself working within your own mindset to get your mind in the right way and looking after your emotional state is I find probably the most important skills that I've mm. picked up in building these. Yeah. And so w- whether they're successful or not, the, the new skill sets that I've got on the other, on the other side is, is I, I, I think really useful and it's, mm. it's really been an important component. Apart from anything else, just don't be a dick. Don't be a dick. <laughs> it's a, it's a really interesting analogy actually, because uh, you know, you've been involved with my um, champions forums and so on. I talk about when you, you know, you have a preferred reality and then you say, yeah. okay, well, this is my current reality what actions yep. do I need to take to move towards my preferred reality? But at the same time, you need to let go of the tiller, right? And mm. it's, I did whitewater rafting a lot when I was a kid too. And it's almost as if once you get caught into the, the, the rapids and so on, mm. you go, okay, I know where I want to go, mm. but I can't try and control every variable here. Mm-mm. I just have to almost trust that as long as I just, you know, continually do the simple things that um, 
uh, I will get to where I need to be. Whereas if I try and be too rigid in holding the tiller or in the case of the kayak, you know, the paddle, you know, if you're holding that paddle really rigidly, it's going to get stuck in rocks and it's going to cause you to capsize and so on. So it's maintaining that balance of the discipline of being focused on what it is you're there to achieve, but also trusting that, um, you know, things will happen in a way that is perhaps not as predictable as you'd like it to be, but you trust that it will get you where you need to get to go. Correct. Yeah, absolutely. And it's you know, in the same way you, you can sit on the side of a river and you can try and look at your line in the rapids that you want to take. Um, and you can visualize it. You can try and play out every part of the rapid in your mind before you mm-hmm. go through it. But when you hit it, you hit it. Yeah. And that's just how it, how it goes. Right. Um, and you have to be able to deal with the problems as they go along. And it, it's uh, another metric on this journey that I developed is a, uh, I call it ROMD. It's return on moments deployed. Right. So define the return that you would like to get out of it and go for your life and invest in, in that to get that return. So if you're with your family, if you're with your kids, you want that love, that love return, invest in, in that to get it. Don't try and blend your different items in your life because that creates conflict, not only conflict in yourself, but also conflict in, within the areas. If you're trying to blend too much of your family and friend life, or your corporates or your company over blending is um, muddies the waters and reduces the ROMD. And that also means that you, you spend so much time um, trying to build or trying to deal with, with issues that you can't deal with as opposed to rolling, moving on and maneuvering. Some things you have to maneuver around. You can't hit every problem and, and conquer it. Mm. Um, some, some problems, some items in life, you just have to let it, let, let it run out and see it see how it plays out yeah um, that age-old uh, thing that AA use and I think it's a biblical quote or something about uh, you know God let me have the intelligence to understand what I can control and what I can't control you know mm-hmm. or voice that effect you can tell I'm a highly religious person and uh, and you know there are things that are outside of your sphere of control you know just accept the fact that that's the case and don't sweat it. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Now, look, Rob, before we wrap it up, I, I wonder if I can be a little self-serving here. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. Um, you attended a Breakfast of Champions in Brisbane and then yes. we moved to Perth. You know, as soon as uh, I said, oh, I've, you know, I've lost my venue because of coronavirus, you said to me, oh, Richard, why don't you put, you know, Champions Forum onto Zoom um, because apart from anything else, it would allow you to continue to attend. Uh, exactly. <laughs> you'd, you'd, you'd enjoyed it. And I said, oh, Rob, that sounds like an interesting idea. I'm, I'm not sure how it'll go, but I'll give it a crack. And now four months later, um, you know, it's absolutely flying ahead. Could you share with me and with the people listening just a little bit about your own experience about being involved and, you know, what you see as some of the benefits of being involved in the um, Champions Forum, please? Yeah, the absolutely the the value that I see or that I take from it is you've got a different level of people in a different environment. So it's not a traditional business get together or networking event. You're able to talk and share um, and and have discussions that traditionally I find are really hard to have. Um, and generally, when you are at work in the moment, in the environment, your shields are up. 
and I find that the discussions and sharing that that we have in the Breakfast of Champions, um, identifying how, how other leaders and other people are dealing with their problems and dealing with dealing with items, and strategically are and from totally different industries and different backgrounds, you can boil it down. And there's a lot of similarity between doesn't matter what the industry is, but the people journeys that are going on. Mm. And I find that for me is really useful to be able to do that. And it's, it's not a course. It's not a, it's not some let's hold hands and sing Kumbaya, uh, lot, lot da stuff. And I hate those things. Let's all, uh, let's, let's go do a team building hoo-ha. Um, and I know those are important, but, um, I think that they, it's, it's not any of those. So that for me is what is valuable. And you're able to, to tackle things that not only helps yourself, but it helps you the business and it also helps how you interact with your networks. Mm. Yeah. Thanks Rob. I appreciate you saying that. And you know, I think that that's as a CEO, it's a very lonely place to be. And there are a lot of things that you wish you could talk to your board about or your team about or your peers about, but you just can't because you know, you've got to maintain the sort of corporate mask. And so to or have even your partner at home, you can't even oh. talk to your partner at home about a few things. You can't talk to your, you, you, you try and talk to some of your friends. They just don't understand it. They don't get it. You can talk to your new puppy though. Oh, and I talk to her a lot. <laughs> Rob's just got a new puppy and uh, 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 we've been talking about that before we started to record the call. Yeah, and um, uh, and so I, I think the opportunity, as you say, to be in a room with a CEO of a bank and a CEO of a not-for-profit and a CEO of a mining company or whatever, you're right in that we assume that we're all unique little snowflakes and, you know, all of our problems are unique to ours and nobody would understand. Then you get into a room, you know, and you're talking to a CEO of a global engineering business, as I know you were in one of my groups a few weeks ago, and you go, wow, like this guy's dealing with exactly the same stuff that I am. Um, So, uh, you know, I appreciate those uh, words, Rob. And um, look, thanks very much. I really appreciate you taking the time to discuss with us Clean Energy Transfer Fund. I must admit, even though I've helped you recruiting a couple of times, it's not something that I've spent a lot of time in. So, you know, it's great to learn even more about your business today. Um, If people are interested in understanding more about, you know, what you do and so on, um, LinkedIn, Rob Ashdown, uh, mm-hmm. and the website Clean Energy Transfer Fund, C-E-T.F-U-N-D. That's right, yeah. Yeah, great. So, look, um, if you want to reach out to Rob and say day and learn a bit more about what he's doing and so on, um, if you're interested in having a chat to me about the, uh, the Champions Forum or, indeed, any recruitment you might need, don't hesitate to reach out. And, uh, Rob, as discussed, um, the minute we can get on a plane and fly either way, I... Uh, Enjoy having a, uh, a well-earned beer or a glass of wine with you. It'll be a couple of those. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Rob. Well, thanks, thanks mate. Have a great Thank afternoon. You. All right. Yeah, bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on the Arate Podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncoverthehiddenjobmarket.com to register your details. The Arate Podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air Podcast Network.